and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Kate Fulton. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Tony Honigberg. Coming up this week, we're going to be talking about the situation in Gaza and the events that have been unfolding all around there. We're also going to be talking to Uta Lemper, songstress and actor-dancer. And we'll be talking to Denise Phillips, chef and cookery writer, about some Shavuot recipes and why we eat certain foods on Shavuot. And we'll be talking to Nermi Krieger from Jewish Care about the Jewish Care's Bake Day for 2018. But first, before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the turmoil in Gaza, as Israel faces a growing diplomatic backlash and new charges of using excessive force after troops fired from across a border fence, killing 58 Palestinians. Ireland and Belgium asked to speak with Israeli ambassadors, while Turkey expelled theirs. It followed the controversial opening in Jerusalem of the new U.S. embassy. MPs in the UK have condemned the force used, and Labour's Rosena Alin Khan called for the cancellation of the planned state visit by President Trump. The Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, said the Gaza violence had been exploited by extremists, but also urged Israel to show restraint. Jeremy Corbyn called for a review of the UK's arms sales to Israel. The Labour leader said there'd been a wanton disregard for international law. But Israel's ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev, maintained that the military did everything possible to avoid bloodshed. Labour's Shadow Attorney General has called for the former London Mayor Ken Livingston to be kicked out of the party following his remarks about Hitler and Zionism. Shami Chakrabarti said Mr Livingston had brought shame on Labour and had often repeated his incendiary remarks. For his part, Mr Livingston claims he'll resist any move to expel him. The Board of Deputies has elected a woman as its next president for only the second time in its 250-year history. Marie van der Zaal, who's 53 and an employment lawyer, beat three other contenders for the position. She paid tribute to the outgoing president, Jonathan Arkush, and said it was an incredible honour for her and that she would do everything possible to serve the community. The former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, has discovered that he's Jewish. Mr Osborne, who's now editor of the London Evening Standard, was actually informed by his younger brother Theo about paperwork he'd found, which traced their maternal grandmother to a Budapest synagogue where she was a member before the war. Theo was able to marry his American fiancée in an Orthodox Jewish wedding last week without needing to convert. And in case you haven't heard, Israel won the Eurovision Song Contest. Netta Barzilai stormed to victory, nudging out Austria and Cyprus with her somewhat energetic song, Toy, that she says is about female empowerment. Benjamin Netanyahu congratulated her and said the festival next year will be hosted in Jerusalem. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Richard Ferrer, the editor of the Jewish News, and he joins us to review the copy of the Jewish News for this week. Front page, Gaza, I guess. Indeed. No surprises and no prizes there, Tony. It's the darkest days in the in the Gaza Strip and across Israel, I think, since 2014, during the last conflict. As we speak today, 64 have been killed in the last few days in clashes, tragic clashes on the border. And roundly across the UK political spectrum, there's been condemnation. Labour, of course, have, have, haven't been slow in coming forward and calling it an outrage, calling for an inquiry, as has Theresa May calling it tragic. And lots of questions are asked across many pages in this week's paper in terms of news and analysis and mm. opinion. 
dreadful. The big question being, well, there are two really. Number one, well, what would you do if you are faced with tens of thousands of people intent on penetrating your border fence and, and causing untold damage to your civilians and citizens? And secondly, is the use of live ammunition excusable in such a condition? So those are the two questions. And I think in terms of the British political scene, the answer is no, live ammunition is not excusable. This isn't a threat that requires it. Richard, what about the fact also that a number of children were killed? Yes, well, look, I'm I'm not on the ground out there, but those that are say that Hamas are paying families to get onto buses and to cause a melee, cause a scene, and amongst that scene of families and children and, and women are these Hamas operatives who are trying to get to the border, get to the fence, use wire cutters, Molotov cocktails, uh, all sorts of weapons, pierce the perimeter and get into Israel proper. Uh, Hamas on Wednesday said that of the 64 killed, up to 50 were members of Hamas. So perhaps that does go some way to supporting the Israel position that these are surgical and targeted to a great extent. But either way, it does it does no favours for Israel or its public image. No, it doesn't. But on the other hand, Rubber bullets, they've tried that before, that doesn't work. Live ammunition, I think they had somewhere, I think Mark Regev said the other day on the radio, that they had inside intelligence that Hamas had told their people that were demonstrating to hide knives and guns under their clothes. So what do they do? I mean, where where do they stand? It's very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, no, I'm not saying anybody's right and anybody's the, wrong. The protest is a front mm. for an attack. Yeah. But yeah, it's certainly an, an attack that I don't think poses a clear and present danger to the Israeli border, which is well armed and thankfully well fortified, and the the towns and villages beyond it are are well protected. They always seem to win, Hamas, the the, the PR war. I I don't know how that keeps happening. I think it's for two reasons. Number one, Israel doesn't really care as much about the PR war as they do about the, the safety of their people. And secondly, Hamas is, is cynical, isn't it? It, it? it uses it uses its own people for its own reasons. Unfortunately, a lot of people this week are saying that neither Israel nor Hamas care very much for the Palestinians. Yeah. I have to say that on television the other night, I actually heard a Hamas man speaking as though he were the Prime Minister of Palestine and he was extremely clever. And I think that Israel does not have very good public relations. No, I mean, that's, it's long been the case. I mean, we, we, it, we struggle desperately to get any sort of military mm. spokesman or political spokesman, as we've done here on, on the show. It's very difficult. I mean, uh, the UK ambassador, Regev, has been fantastic. I mean, he was on the programme recently, wasn't mm. he? Yeah. So he's been a breath of fresh air. But traditionally, and for years, it's been incredibly difficult to get the Israeli government to talk to the diaspora or indeed really convey what it's trying to achieve to the British media in general. Yeah, indeed. What else is on there? Well, should we raise the tone slightly and in terms of mood? So last week I was in Israel for our Aliyah 100 celebration. Now, readers and listeners might remember that we did a countdown last year of the 100 British Jews who have made Aliyah and shaped the Israeli state. Well, we had about 40 of them at the ambassador's residence in Ramat Gan. It was a wonderful celebration, a real sort of flag-waving moment where you can celebrate the, the bonds between the two countries and how you know the British invasion has, has shaped Israeli technology and e-commerce, business, the military, sport 
pop culture was wonderful. So we had David Quarry, the UK's ambassador out there. We had Isaac Herzog, the leader of the opposition. Natan Sharansky was there. The number one on our list, Alice Shalvey, who's a wonderful poet and, and literary force who made Aliyah back in 1949. I think she was a teenager. You know, she's been out there the longest. Daniel Taub. We have music from the Portnoy brothers, who are fantastic. This duo from Manchester who made Aliyah. It was a, a real special event and yeah, one that the Jewish is very proud of. And have they made the, the UK, the British Jews, do they seem to make it made a bigger impact than, than any of the other countries who have made sort of gone in waves? Are we just very flag flying and, and pushing it out there? 40,000, here's an interesting stat, 40,000 British Jews have made Aliyah in 70 years. Now, that's a drop in the ocean compared to some of the immigrant communities. Mm. I mean, the Russians. The Russians, the French now. French French community, big time in the last couple yeah. of years, particularly in Netanya and Haifa and some of the, the, the bigger towns and cities in and around the centre of the country. Massive influx. South Americans, Americans. So, yeah, we're a drop in the ocean. But look at the noise we make. Yeah. Lastly, on a very busy front page it's of course the royal wedding that we're celebrating Mazel Tov to Mazel Harry Tov to, yep. and, and, and Meghan so we have Stacey Hart the Jewish Bake Off contestant has baked of course it's Shavuot as well so it's all seamlessly interlinked a Shavuot <laughs> wedding cake for the happy couple which consists of pink cream of course for the bride and a ginger base for Harry delicious ginger biscuits delicious appropriate it's a cheesecake as we call it fit for the royal wedding and and, fit for shavuot as you say and fit for shavuot so two two kosher birds with one stone and it's on page 32 so thank you Stacey for being such a star and baking such a lovely dish I must say the picture of it looks almost good enough to eat you know what Tony we didn't get this cake we got the pictures of the cake I don't know where the cake because you're supposed to be making it on page 32 oh you've got the recipe there to make it I know but I'd like to get some sort of sort of taste understanding so I can kind of measure it to my own but no unfortunately all I had was the mouth watering pictures but not the mouth all staged photos I think Mm. and of course in the last week we had the Eurovision Song Contest and the winner was Um, Anne Israeli exactly yes one of my great loves the Eurovision Song Contest Israel won is it really absolutely yes I've been watching it too many years than I care (laughs) to mention Israel has won it four times now three times no 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 it's well it was was three up until last week now it's four and it's pop quiz time can anyone name the other three um a bunny b a bunny b yes a bunny bay a bunny bay a, i shall i'm not going to start singing Sing it. it um oh, no what was the other one yes. uh, phil's in the studio mouthing the answers to everyone which is <laughs> a slight cheat but fair enough so we need two more <laughs> i can't we have hallelujah oh yeah and the most recent one which was in 1997 which was, was dana international viva la and that was the best one. Viva la diva. Anyway, we probably haven't got the Four copyright times. for me to I mean, sing, so uh, I won't. I'll, the ears, I'll, I'll really. sing, so I'll <laughs> sing no longer. Uh, so it was very exciting. Obviously, being in Israel last week for the event, the Aliyah 100, I was also out there as it happened, celebrating with the Israelis. The excitement Uh, must have been phenomenal. It was uh, the biggest pop culture moment for Israel in so many years. And so lovely because obviously we've had all these BDS Mm. boycott, divestment and sanctions Mm. issues. And it turns out that the people 
who voted across Europe absolutely loved Liked Israel. Her. They ran they ran away with it. There was lots of chicken songs, which you can't fit in with your Shavuot cheesecake, obviously. I'm trying to oh, think of ways we could <laughs> But there was a it was it was it was a very busy song, wasn't it? So I know we were talking about the front page being very but the whole song was a lot happening. It was for the eyes as well as the ears. It was. It was a mm. great novelty song with some great gimmicky sort of dance moves and it really stood out. Cyprus ran them close, but they won in the end. I was out there with our news editor Justin Cohen, who at one AM ran out into Rabin Square with uh, 20,000 people and started dancing this this song. I unfortunately couldn't go because I had to get up early the next morning. That's of course you did, yeah. <laughs> I um, can see Justin doing that. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we've got a wonderful piece on, on Netta's celebration. Justin's done a piece on Rabin Square and we've interviewed the head of the Israeli Eurovision fan club who was also out there. So Brilliant. yes, we've, we've gone Brilliant. big on Eurovision and uh, next year in ne- Jerusalem. I was just going to say you took the yeah. words right out of my mouth. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know it was Pesach, but yeah, next year in Jerusalem indeed. That's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. Thank you so much, Richard. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, we're all in for a treat. Very excited. With us is Uta Lempa, international singer, actor and dancer, best known by us all for her interpretation of the work of Kurt Weil. Her credits include the recreation of the Marlena Dietrich character Lola in The Blue Angel. She was the original Sally Bowles in the Paris production of Cabaret, Velma Kelly in Chicago, and the voice of Ariel in Disney's Little Mermaid, for the, that was the German language version. So we've heard that you are, I mean, a part of your incredible career, you've learned some Yiddish. What's that all about and how did that come about? Well, this project is a very specific uh, project that I invented uh, two years ago, 70 years after the war. In January, it was the anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camps, and it's a very important program. You know, I am German-born, and I have to say that dedicating my life has always been a mission to speak about the past, the German history that I have inherited by my parents and grandparents. And it is a complicated chapter in time to discuss and to constantly look back at. And it's my, my mission started uh, 30 years ago when I started to record the music of the Weimar Republic, the music that was later on banned by the Nazis. I'm speaking about the music of Kurt Weil, of Spolianski, Schiffer, Holländer, the Jewish composers of the, the 20s in Berlin that most of them immigrated and were able to reestablish their careers in other countries, mostly America. This was the first chapter, but now to fulfill the cycle and to close up the cycle, I decided to find a collection of songs, to research a collection of songs that are actually written during the war in the ghettos and in the concentration camps. How did you get uh, hold of the songs? And this is it's quite, quite incredible to actually to find them and yeah. to bring them all together. How did that well, come about? Mm. Of course, I live in New York since 20 years. I am surrounded by a wonderful people who have Jewish heritage, immigrations, journeys, children of Holocaust survivors. Uh, that is a very present reality here in New York. But I received a book 15 years ago from a friend of mine, Israeli woman, a child of a Holocaust survivor, which collects the songs of the ghettos, specifically the ghetto in Lithuania, the Vilnius ghetto. It is a book that was first published 1948 by Schmerke a survivor who had escaped the ghetto in Vilnius and became a partisan. He made it to New York in 1946 and published the first edition of this book, Songs Never Silenced. These are songs... The the survivors at the time had 
they couldn't speak about what had happened. Nobody really wanted to listen to the stories. Though after World War II, the world needed to move on, look to forward only into the future, and nobody had the space to listen to the tales of horror and death and murder and humiliation that these survivors were carrying around, plus the guilt that they actually had survived, plus they lost all the families and friends. So this uh, man, Schmerke Kazaginski, made it a task to collect and gather quickly documentation in song about the Holocaust. Yeah. This book is with me for 15 years, and I, uh, when I decided to uh, put an evening together, I met a friend, an Italian musicologist. His name is Francesco Lotoro, who also dedicated his life to gather songs that were written in the concentration camps. And out of these two sources, I put put an evening. Of course, there were songs in Polish and Russian, songs in, in other languages, but I specifically took the songs in Yiddish and in German because I don't speak the other languages. And you're bringing this to London, so we get the we get the benefit of hearing it. Yes, these are songs. I'm of course reflecting the tragedy behind the barbed wire. There are songs. Some of the songs are pretty dark, really telling about how people felt, how how they were suffering. But there are also uh, wonderful other songs about hope and uh, celebration of life. Songs of love and uh, children. Songs, uh, cradle songs that, that were sing in consolation to the children in Theresienstadt, for example. Ilse Weber is one of the wonderful composers who uh, was a nurse and she invented songs to sing to the children at night. Artists, too, like in Theresienstadt was a was a concentration camp that incarcerated actually the com- the professional composers. So uh, Victor Ullmann was a contemporary to Kurt Weill and he composed symphonies, song cycles, string quartets, really incredible music and some of those songs I will sing also. Will you be uh, introducing them? Will you be telling people about them? Yes, of course. It's an, it's an evening of storytelling, really. And of course, I have like uh, 14, 15 songs I will sing, but I will lay out the story in English first because the Yiddish, I guess, is not such a common language in England. But I also will definitely uh, get into the background of the songs, the, so- the stories around the creation of these songs. And it, it really is, is a very captivating and, 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 and sensitive evening. Also, for me as a performer, I feel like really it, I'm giving I'm just more like a medium to to let these songs live again in our time today and it is also a mark for me to do this evening to look at our society at our our countries nowadays that we still have signs of anti-semitism racism we have false prophets that are advertising racism and people following it it is also in the name of under the umbrella of uh, populism and nation, nationalism that exists in many countries nowadays including the UK Germany America that people are again uh, somehow vulnerable to uh, actually preaching intolerance so it, it is an evening that is important nowadays as much as it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It, it has to do with our lives and our societies nowadays. You're going to perform the songs for one night. Are any of them being recorded so people can listen to mm. them again and again? I have not put out a recording, but you can go on YouTube because when we did this evening in Italy, the television filmed it and uh, the whole show is on YouTube. If you put in Uta Lemper Songs for Eternity, you will see 11, 12 songs. It's actually much nicer than to just listen to them, to see actually see them performed with wonderful musicians and you can you can find them. 
thank you very much. Well, we look forward to seeing you at JW3. It is an, it is an unusual evening, and you named some of the shows I had played over over my life. Yes, these were it's like very the, different, the this one. musical shows. But, but as I said, my recording career always was dedicated very much to the, the story of the Weimar Republic, uh, the German story, and the Jewish composers. And it is a different a side uh, sidetrack that I always took and made it my mission to keep up the dialogue about this past in the purpose to say never again. Thank you very much, Uta. And just to remind you, if you do want to go and hear Uta, sounds like it's going to be a wonderful evening. She's at JW3 on the 22nd of May at 7.30pm. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And with us now is Denise Phillips, the Jewish domestic goddess. And she's here to give us, among other things, a recipe for Shavuot. Now, I know it's all to do with dairy, isn't it? This is true. We do have dairy over Shavuos, and there are quite a number of reasons. One of the main reasons is that when the Jews received the Torah, they really weren't that au fait or familiar with the laws of Kashrus, and so it was easier and safer to keep with dairy. In addition, when they did receive the Torah, it was received on Shabbos, when slaughtering and cooking were prohibited and still are, so, again, they kept a dairy. But what is really rather exciting, and this is the few ideas which I rather like, that receiving the Torah is like a form of rebirth, like we connect, like a mother, mother nurtures her baby and gives it milk. So we get the spiritual nourishment like a baby gets its own natural nourishment. So I think that's rather nice. And the word halav in Hebrew means milk. Mm. And the gematria of that is 40, which means which corresponds with the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was up Mount Sinai. And of course, we were going over to the land of milk and honey. So what, what exactly is the best thing to eat on Shavuot, according to you? And will you, would you say you'll be eating and we should all be eating? Well, you have to include something daring, of course. Why not eat something meaningful? So there will be dairy meal on my menu over Shavuos and I'm going to be having something completely different. This is actually in my recent cookbook is the salmon cheesecake. But not everyone likes dairy. So I've got a really great recipe for a vegan option. And this is called gooey vegan banana cheesecake. So those that have dairy intolerances can enjoy too. That sounds absolutely delicious. So this is not only does not require any cooking it's more of an assembly and it's divided in two so you have a base and you have a filling and the base is made of 175 grams of soft dried dates which i pour boiling water over to soften them and then what also gives it an, a lovely texture is raw unsalted cashew nuts that's 150 grams of those and then dried banana 100 grams of dried banana three tablespoons of coconut oil, pinch of salt, and one teaspoon of cinnamon. So put the whole lot, and then say drain the dates from the boiling water into the Maggi mix. So you've got a really nice paste. And you're going to put that on the base of a loose tin, 22 centimetre loose tin, lined tin with baking parchment paper. Leave it in the fridge to set. Now we're going to get on to the filling. The filling, the vegan filling, is made of, again, it's raw and salted cashew nuts. But what you do with that, and that's 350 grams, 
You soak it in water for about eight hours or over overnight. And what you get is a lovely creamy texture. So this is your cheese alternative. The following day, drain it off so you have a really light, white, creamy nuts. And you put that into the Maggi mix together with two tablespoons of coconut oil. And this is also unusual. Two frozen bananas. So you take two bananas, pop them in the freezer, and then you take them out, peel it, and then you've got that really gooey texture. Mm. Wonderful combination. Together with 100 mils of maple syrup, two teaspoons of vanilla extract, a tablespoon of cayenne seeds, and a pinch of salt. Again, Put all in the Maggi mix and pour it over top of your base. It sounds then, delicious to me. And then what I really do, because it looks all a bit brown and, and too, not too exciting, so make it look really exciting, as you will see in the photograph. What I do is I put some banana chips, which you can get in most wholesale shops, and then you can get melt some chocolate and pour that over and chop nuts. So it looks really pretty and has texture. And it's vegan and very healthy, so you won't feel guilty when you take another mouthful. Sounds wonderful. I wish you'd have brought some in. What else have you got? Well, for those that are making traditional cheesecakes, I thought I'd just try and keep you on the straight and narrow and to make it your creation will not be a disaster. So make sure you bring all the ingredients to room temperature, talking about the eggs and the cream cheese, and then don't overcombine it. People tend to mix this too much and you really want a lovely light texture. And then don't open the oven door while baking. Cook it slowly. And another really good tip is that let it set in the oven. Let it cool down naturally. If you suddenly pull it out of the oven, your cheesecake will crack. So leave it for as long as you possibly can and then put it into the fridge. And then don't decorate it too soon before serving decorate it you know maximum of an hour otherwise it you know it may go soggy so you say decorate but i seem to remember from my childhood many 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 years ago that when my grandmother made blinzers there had to be no decoration on them if we're not that's blinzers this is cheesecake ah <laughs> but yeah but it was that's what blinzers were no blinzers is a pancake and then you put curd cheese inside ah so, I said corrected. <laughs> well, that's what it Did is. It is lovely. They begin with the mixture of the, you have to let it cool. You can't have put curd cheese into a hot pancake. And exactly the same with the cheesecake. If you decorate it when it's hot, it's not going to cut beautifully. And you're, you know, whatever you put on top will melt. It starts to separate, doesn't it? You know, well, it, go oily. It, it, but, and, well, it won't look great, <laughs> to be honest. You, I understand there's a new product out. There are a few new products. One of them that's quite like for perfect for Chavers. Sheffington's got a new cream cheese. It was also supervised in time for Pesach. But ideally, why not take advantage over Chavers? And it spreads beautifully. It's got a slightly salty texture and it spreads just like regular cream cheese. Now, as well as, as, well as all the wonderful food that you make and you've just been describing, Gather you've also just been on a four-day trip to Israel. I have. I went on the United Synagogue trip celebrating the 70th anniversary. Now, this was jam-packed with some really incredible experiences, starting off with a trip to the Mossad Center. But we had a talk by a secret agent. So we were getting lots of information perhaps you and I would not normally get. We also met the British ambassador at his residence. We even met the president himself and he gave us a little talk. We went to the Kotel, but we had a talk with the chief officer of police telling us what's going on behind the scenes. So wherever opportunity there was, we had more explanation. 
I understand that Chief Rabbi Mervis was also there and was very involved. What happened? Yes, he was there with his wife, Valerie, and he, what he did was he talked about what he'd done over the last three weeks. And one of the trips he went to was over to Ethiopia and talking about his time there and really trying to promote what Israel can contribute. And they were very interested in the science and the new discoveries to help them with equipment for water. So he is doing all sorts of different ventures, more than you and I would really think. Off he went. So what I really wanted to do, so having heard a lot about this, that night I went off to a new kosher Ethiopian restaurant just to experience the food there because I wasn't familiar with that. And it was, again, very, very different. Well, that's a marvellous way in which to end this little chat about your visit to Israel and indeed all about what you should eat for Shavuot. Thank you, Denise, very much indeed. If you'd like details of Denise's recipes or, in fact, any other information on any of our guests, do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News and in the studio with us is Naomi Krieger from Jewish Care who is here to tell us all about Bake Day for 2018. First I want to ask you, before we go into 2018, this started about six years ago didn't it? Yes that's right. What was the inspiration in starting it? We wanted to begin a community event which everybody could get involved with didn't matter the age group from naught to 100 and above 100 as some of our um, <laughs> clients are today anyone can enjoy cake have a chat with someone and at the same time it helps to raise money for Jewish care and there is a quiz going on on the 2018 one to see what type of cake you are as a person is that right is that what I'm thinking yeah it's kind of a um, fun personality lifestyle quiz right so uh, which some people find themselves doing on and, a- and you end up as a Jewish cake Exactly. Um, right. Can and I Kate, just say, I am about to be that Jewish cake. I'm just going through. Are they quite interesting questions? And, you know, you try and sort of second guess the answer, but quite honestly, what my favourite cartoon character is, I genuinely don't know where, how that is going to take me to my cake. So I've got, if you can bear with me, I'm going to choose for this one Scooby-Doo. I am. Don't even go why there. <laughs> my favourite way to get around has got to be walking, and I'm about to find out what cake I am. Seriously? I'm a honey cake, Naomi. Oh, okay, how sweet. I'm sweet and kind, but full of surprises and know how to make everyone around me feel good. Well, that's me. So you heard Be- it first before, on the Jewish Views. Before we carry on, would you like to just give the website of the quiz so people can try it out at home? Of course, I'd love to. We are on jewishcare.org forward slash bake day. Okay, lovely. Now tell me about 2018 bake day. This year, we're inviting the community to come up with loads of innovative ideas, whether you want to open a bake day stall in your street and invite all the neighbours around to have a cup of tea and cake, a bit of lemonade, you can get your kids cooking and being little entrepreneurs. You can make a bake sale at school and do some cooking, sell your cakes. You can invite your friends over for a coffee morning and your family as well. We're trying to get people together of all generations. So also, if you want to get in touch with us, we'll ask about where you are and try and put you in touch with the local community centre and we have five community centres and five centres for people with dementia so we're spread across London and the South East so we can match you up to visit some people in our centres and have some fun with cake. For those who don't know what Jewish Care actually does and I'm sure there are a number of people out there can you just give us a brief on what Jewish Care itself does? 
Yes, absolutely. Jewish Care, we're the largest health and social care organisation for the Jewish community in the UK. And as I said, we're working across London and the South East to support older members of the community. We have the residential, 11 residential homes, and we have, as I was talking about before, we have ver- various community centres and centres for people living with dementia. We have home care. We're basically there to support older members of the community also people with mental health problems Mm. and Holocaust survivors at our centre in Hendon. How's the bake day going to work? Are the competitions, how's it going to work? This year, we're inviting people to do the quiz just for a bit of fun and there's not necessarily a competitive element unless you want to introduce one. You could have a bake-off in your school. You could, I mean, we welcome everybody to do a bake day. So you can interpret event. the day as you will. It's an interpretative cake movement. <laughs> exactly. It's about getting together, eating cake and raising some money for Jewish care. So, you know, even if a few pounds and upwards is really, What are you going to put on during the day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if people are... We're going to have to think of healthy cakes because we don't just want to think sugar and fat and butter. We want to think fruits and and things that because there are there are some quite clever vegany recipes now that that actually more more nuts and and things that are not necessarily just going to pile on the calories yeah absolutely i think it's a great reason for everyone to really look into that kind of creativity well that suddenly strikes me that what diabetic members of the competition if you like what do they make do you make any suggestions to them well, we do have health area on our website and I, th- I believe in the area we're suggesting that people choose healthy options and sugar-free options as well. So, for example, I know um, we have relatives who have diabetes, so we'd always find a sugar-free alternative. Oh, sushi cake. There you go. <laughs> I've actually had, Clive, a sushi cake. What it is, is sushi d- cake? It literally... That it's sushi all made up in different layers with a with a sort of the seaweed, if you like, being the icing, and delicious. There you go. And the the, the, the sauce or the custard, if you like, would be wasabi. So not a bit of sugar in sight. How about that? That's an excellent idea. There you go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna win the competition that's not even there. <laughs> <laughs> so the cakes specifically don't have to be Jewish cakes linked around festivals, but they can be if they want to, or they can yeah. just be any cake. Yeah, I think we were looking at this time of year to start talking about Bake Day because a lot of Jewish festivals are Shavuos, associated course, with food yes. and it's, it's uh, Shavuot and cheesecake this week and it just starts people thinking when they've got a little bit of time over Yontif to look at, okay, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to get together with my friends or kids? Should we have a bake sale? Should we talk to school? Well, that's a nice thing, actually, that the whole family can get involved. We've got from all ages because you can actually do something very, very simple. You can just create something or you can make it as fancy schmancy as you as you wish. What would you yeah. say is the most popular Jewish cake? Would you say it's cheesecake? Well, certainly this time of year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have to, obviously, our, our quiz, it seems to be quite a lot of people are rugelachs. Mm. So, I, I mean, what bread? do you like? What's your favourite cake? Mine is cheesecake. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, it's good all year round. If people want to get involved, how do they get in touch with you? Best thing to do, you can visit the website, jewishcare.org forward slash bake day. And we'll send you a fundraising pack with ideas. Also recipes. We've got some lovely recipes from members of our centres who've donated their recipes and stories about how they got to them. And that's what's really important. And that's what it's all about is... Without those members, getting the Jewish Care bus 
from home to the community centres, their day would be a lot less interesting. And, you know, that's what it's all about is our members who are And when does this start? Well, bake day is on Wednesday the 4th of July. So you can hold your bake day event anytime in the run-up or afterwards. We kind of use the 4th of July as the focus right. date. And, it, and, and is there a, a length of time that they have to do the bake day within or can it go on? for? You can do it any time of year. The summer is always good because you can have lovely outdoor events, which is why we hold the bake day. And summer fruit cakes. Absolutely. Like and you can make it as, as we were talking about healthy, you know, granola options or put fruit out as well so that there's the options have a healthy choice with a little bit of cake which is okay once in a while <laughs> everybody likes to treat absolutely Naomi thank you very much for coming in today to join us and tell us all about Bake Day that's a pleasure Thanks thank you very much me. if you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show then we'd love to hear your Jewish views email studio at jewishviews.co.uk on Facebook go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and it comes this time from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue. On Shavuot, we read the Book of Ruth, which has a number of connections with the festival. Nonetheless, as the Midrash points out, the book doesn't teach us a single halacha, It does not contain issues of purity or impurity, nor prohibitions or permissions. So why was it written? To teach us the magnitude of the reward for those who bestow loving-kindness on others. Ruth opens with telling us that in the days when the judges judged there was a famine in Israel, a man lives in Bethlehem in Judah to settle in Moab. We're then told of his identity. He was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They stayed there, and he died. As we know, Abraham and Jacob had left Israel when there was a famine and returned richer and stronger. On the face of it, Elimelech has strong precedents. However, the Gomorrah states, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said, Elimelech, Machlon and Chilion were the greatest of their generation and the sustainers of their generation. And why were they punished? Because they departed from the land of Israel. How does Shimon ben Yochai reach such a judgmental conclusion? How does he determine that this is a punishment and not some sorry death of hungry refugees? Why did Elimelech choose Moab? It is thought strange that someone would go to Moab at a time of famine. The Moabites had a reputation as an unfriendly, uncharitable people. It was their refusal to feed the wandering children of Israel that saw them vilified in the Torah. Perhaps Elimelech's was the only family to leave. It seems that everyone else stayed in Bethlehem. Moreover, when Naomi eventually returns, we don't see that she's given a rapturous welcome or that the people go out of their way to assist her. So the rabbis determine that Elimelech was not driven out by hunger. On the contrary, he's described as an ish, a man of substance. His family had been affluent and able to provide for everyone else. They left through meanness of character. Elimelech had not wanted to share the burden of care for his place of birth. Several Midrashim depict Elimelech as the stingy, recalcitrant, potential sustainer. And why was he punished? He was amongst the greatest, one of the sustainers of his generation. But when the years of famine came, he said, Now all of Israel will surround my doorway. This one with his arms box, another one with his pushka. He stood up and fled from them. It's possible that the rabbis are hinting at the biblical symmetry. 
Judah and a failure to step up? Doesn't that ring a bell? Hadn't Judah himself failed to rescue his brother Joseph and instigated his sale into exile by appealing to the others, what profit is there for us if we kill him? Let's sell him instead. And hadn't Judah eventually found himself humbled and begging for grain when the famine hit? Of course, in the interim, Judah had moved away from his family. Two of his sons died. Judah was seduced by his daughter-in-law Tamar and fathered twins. And the oldest of these was Peretz. Peretz, another familiar name. At the very end of the Megillah, we discover that Peretz is the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Boaz. Both Boaz and Ruth model loving-kindness. In Ruth's case, we see her loyalty to Naomi, even though Ruth must abandon her homeland. Boaz instructs his workers to be even more charitable than normal, leaving extra grain for Ruth to glean, clearly at the expense of his profits. And the Megillah ends by telling us that Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of King David, first monarch of the redemptive messianic house. Within the Megillah and in its allusions, the message of Ruth is clear. We're called upon to be demonstrably kind, to give of ourselves to others, to contribute rather than run from community. Of course, the world would be an easier place if we all just received whatever we wanted whenever we wanted it. But it's our ability to reach out to others when they are in need that makes it a godly place and makes us godly people. Let's seek out those opportunities and not be blind to hunger and homelessness. It's overseas, it's in Israel, and it's also on our doorsteps. Let us show our loving kindness in actions, not just words, to seek out those opportunities and give of ourselves. Wishing you and all your families a Chag Sameach. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue for our thought for the week. That's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Uta Lemper, Denise Phillips, and Nemi Krieger. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk and please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Tony Honickberg. From me, Kate Fulton. And from me, Clive Broslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.